0: Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, This morning, we're going to return to reading uh, 2 Corinthians together. It's been about a month and a half since we last uh, looked at this letter, a letter that Paul wrote because his relationship with the church at Corinth had taken a pretty bad hit. Uh, He wrote this letter to foster reconciliation with them, to deepen reconciliation with them, and to answer lingering and honestly painful questions about his leadership. And you will hear um, just about all of that stuff come up to the surface when I read from the beginning of Second Corinthians 7 for us right now. So I'll read verses 2 through 9. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you, I have great pride in you, I am filled with comfort in all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. We pray for us. Father, we ask that this thing that we just sang together um, would be true in this moment, and that we would know that it's true. That you by your spirit are coming and breathing in us. That you'd use this word to enliven us, to comfort us, to convict us, to compel us, to show us the grace of Jesus again and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, maybe some of you know that our uh, fine and fair city has received more than its usual share of national attention this week. Uh, There were pieces in the Guardian, in in the New York Times, and in the Wall Street Journal about us this week. Uh, The trigger, of course, for all of this coverage was the standoff between the teachers' union and City Hall. But as you know, that is not all that that coverage was about. We've been taking it on the chin about a lot of things lately. And uh, the Tribune's main editorial last Friday was in part about all of this. It started by asking a question. The question was, what kind of picture of the city is being painted by all of this stuff that's going on, by all of this coverage? And the answer was this, a city devolved into a crisis. And then the editorial went on. There is hard evidence, it said. We've got kids out of school infuriated and exhausted parents, an unacceptable homicide rate, carjackings terrifying citizens, a vaunted retail and entertainment sector on its knees, upstanding citizens newly afraid to walk the dog around the corner, a growing national reputation for dysfunctionality, and a pervasive sense that too much is raging out of control here on the shores of Lake Michigan. Happy New Year, Chicago. I know, I know most of us have thoughts about at least a couple of things on that list, but I didn't read them to talk about any one of them in particular. I read them to capture the feelings that all of them convey together. That's stuff that we don't need any journalist or any paper to tell us about, the stuff that feels like it's just in the air in our city right now. Things are not right. And it's exhausting. Paul uses a word in that passage that we just read together that we don't often use in our culture. It's kind of fallen into disfavor, but I think it captures the feelings pretty well. Downcast. People are downcast all around us. And some of us feel downcast. And you know, maybe uh, for you, that's not related to the larger goings-on of the city. You've barely even noticed those things. Maybe for you, the downcast is for more intimate and personal reasons, some loss or some struggle that you're facing, some sickness or a slight or a callous word that you were on the receiving end of. Maybe you feel downcast because there's something that's going on in your family or in a relationship that feels too big or too tangled up to be able to figure out. And of course, I know there are some of us here this morning who, who don't feel that at all, but who are close to people who do. Well, one of the things that I love about that part of the letter that we just read together is that right in the center of it, Paul says, God comforts the downcast. And then he gives them a really great example of how God did it for him when he was downcast. It's not this big miraculous intervention where everything gets fixed at once. I mean, God can do that if he wants, but it's usually not like that at all. Not for Paul and his friends, and not for you and me either. God often comforts quietly, using the people around us. And the more that we've given ourselves to each other in love, the deeper that comfort can be extended, and the deeper that comfort is felt. The more that we have given ourselves to one another in love, the deeper that comfort can be extended, and the deeper that comfort is felt. These are some of the most affecting of all of the lines in Paul's letters, and I think we have something to learn from it. I mean, it couldn't start more vulnerably open-handed than it does in verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. (laughs) That's an appeal to deeper reconciliation. It's also an appeal to mutual affection. Back in the last chapter, Paul has already assured the Corinthian church that they are in his heart, that, that his heart is wide open to them. He says, you are in my heart. And here in verse three, he says, you are in my heart to live together and to die together. I have great pride in you, he says. This is the language of deep affection. This is the language of unrestrained and non-contingent devotion. Paul cares deeply about these people, and he has given himself over completely to their welfare. And church, this is really important, because this is the vision of the entire New Testament for the church. This is the the vision of the entire New Testament for people like us, that we would be a community that is given over to each other's welfare and given over to each other's good. That is the vision of the church, of course, because that is the way of life of the one that we say that we follow. Jesus gave himself for us with uncontingent devotion, unrestrained devotion. He gave of himself for our good. So if we follow him, we're called to live like him. That's the vision. But what I wanna talk about is the result for people like us when we live in that costly way. The result for people like us when we live in that costly way is an uncommon and deeply meaningful mutuality that heals our most profound sorrows and that nourishes our hopes and our joys. Paul wrote about that already in the beginning of the letter. We talked about it way back at the beginning of September. He said, God comforts us in all our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. That's how the life of faith works, church. Our Old Testament lesson in Isaiah 51, uh, it looks forward to this time when God's people would be a place where joy and gladness could be found. It's like this image that the whole world is hungry and thirsty and they're just looking for joy and gladness and they look around and they see that it can be found among God's people. Why? Because God has comforted his people. And now they are filled with joy and gladness. And church, because of what Jesus has done for us and his cross and resurrection and ascension through the work of the Spirit in us, I want you to know that that time... That time where God's people are the source of joy and gladness for the world, that time is right now for us. And the more that we have given ourselves to each other in love, the deeper that comfort can be extended, and the deeper we will feel it, and the deeper we will know it when we really need it. The sooner that people like us move from being observers of Christian community, the sooner that people like us move from being consumers of Christian community into being full participants in it, we will feel the deep usefulness that we have been made for, and we will feel the comfort that we desperately need. That's certainly been Paul's experience. He writes about it over and over and over again. And that's why he can say that completely absurd, but beautiful sounding thing that he says at the end of verse four. This is what he says In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. (laughs) It sounds nuts, it sounds completely delusional. But, church, he is experiencing what is possible. He has experienced what is possible for people like us through the uncommon and deeply meaningful mutuality of the church, of this church. And he explains how that's true uh, starting in verse 5. It seems like it's an abrupt shift, but it's really not. This is what he writes in verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest We were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Now, I know it's been a while. I don't really expect anybody to remember all that's happened between Paul and this church that he founded in Corinth. I don't expect anybody to know why he's talking about Macedonia all of a sudden. But the story is important. So just let me recap it quickly. Paul founded that church in Corinth, and he lived and he worked there among those people and with those people and for those people for a year and a half. And sometime after he left Corinth, no surprise at all, he started writing letters to them. Sometimes those letters were in response to questions that they would ask him. 1 Corinthians is that. It's it's a bunch of answers to questions they asked him. And when the emissary who delivered 1 Corinthians came back to Paul, he came back with some very bad news. There were folks in the church now that were actively working to undercut Paul as their father in the faith. There were some folks in the church there who were questioning his qualifications, his whole life as a leader. So Paul, when he heard this news dropped everything, he made an emergency visit to Corinth and that visit went horribly. Paul called it a painful visit because he was personally attacked by someone or a group of people, and no one rose to defend him. And so he left quickly. And he wrote another letter, a letter we don't have. Paul said he wrote that letter with anguish of heart. He wrote it with many tears. It's sometimes referred to as the severe letter, and no doubt it was very forceful and very hot. He sent it with a guy named Titus, and the plan was to meet Titus in Troas and to hear how that letter had been received and the effect that it had had. But Titus never showed up in Troas. Now you got to remember, it's not like Paul could just send a text to Titus. It's not like he could email Titus. It's not like he could call Titus up and just go, man, I'm dying here. Can you tell me what happened? So here's what Paul's left with. He's left with this huge open wound. He had been hurt badly. And he had sent a letter that addressed that pain head on. He has been hurt. And he sent a letter that he knew could cause deep hurt. And now months have passed. Months have passed. And he has no idea. He has no idea what's going on with his friends in Corinth. He has no idea what's happening with Titus. He is so troubled about it. He is so disconsolate about it that he decides to drop everything and leave Troas just to travel to the next place he thinks Titus might be, which is Macedonia. But Titus was not there when he arrived. And it gutted Paul. That's why he says, My body didn't have any rest. Fighting without and fear within. You can feel the anguish. You can feel the toll that it's taking on his body. Now, I know that on some level, every one of us in here knows this. You know, the older you get, the more deeply you begin to know this. But let me say it anyway. If you love people, it will cost you. <laughs> because to love is to make yourself vulnerable. It's staggering, you know, to think of that sometimes. It's staggering for me to think about that when I think about God loving me. But he did, and he does. And it's God's love for people like us. That is poured into our hearts by the Spirit working overtime. That gives halting and imperfect lovers like you and me, and even like the Apostle Paul, the ability to love even when it costs. Church, I want you to know it's absolutely true. If you love someone, it's costly. But because we have been loved perfectly, we have everything that we need to love even when it costs. It's definitely costing Paul in Macedonia. He has tried everything that he knows to do, and he is at the end of his rope. But God, he says in verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Eventually, old slowpoke, always late to the party, Titus gets off the boat at the port in Macedonia, and he ambles his way over to wherever the rendezvous point was, and he sees Paul, and he sees the look in his face, and he says, Paul, don't worry, man, it's okay. The letter was good, the letter was good. They read it and they understood it and they wanna act on it, the letter was fine. In fact, Paul, most of them were so terrified that you were mad at them and that you'd never wanna see him again. I told him, don't worry about it, Paul. Don't worry about it, Paul loves you guys. He's gonna come and see you again. There's still trouble there. There's still things we need to address. You're gonna to have to write another letter, but Paul, it's okay. Or, as Paul put it, God comforted us not only by Titus coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. God had extended, church, He had extended this deep and uncommon healing mutuality across the sea. He had extended this healing mutuality across uncertainty and anxiety, He, He had extended it across regret. And he has brought comfort because Titus showed up. And I think there's lots of things to say about this, but let me just start by saying this. Sometimes God comforts the downcast through really simple things, like a friend showing up. Sometimes God will use you to comfort the downcast by sending you to show up. Not a miracle. Not, not a complete reversal of everything. Not a crazy story that you had to be there to believe. No angels. No bright lights. Just somebody showing up. Just you showing up. God comforts downcast people like you and me through ordinary means. And a lot of the time... We are the ordinary means. (laughs) And we have two parts in that, I think. The first is to be on the lookout for it when it comes. I know, you know, our culture teaches us to hold stuff close to the vest, to keep our cards in close. You know, it teaches us to do that because... It teaches us to be worried about being a burden or, or that we don't want to look weak or that we don't want to look like we need things or we live under this delusion that somehow we're the only people that have ever gone through any trouble like this. If we would just be vulnerable enough to be honest about what we're facing, we might be surprised at the comfort. We might be surprised at the comfort that might come from people around us through simple things like solidarity and laughing together, prayer together, a shared meal. Our culture trains us that we can and that we should have our problems all solved right now. But the enduring and deep problems are never solved right now and what we need until they are cared for by jesus himself is comfort so be on the lookout for comfort and may we all be as over the moon about it as paul was when it comes in all my affliction i'm overflowing with joy he said the other side of that for us is to be ready to be available to be that for someone. You know, I, I'm not going to solve any standoffs between City Hall and the Teachers Union. I can't do that. But I do know CPS teachers and CPS principals and CPS staff and CPS parents and CPS students, and you do too because they're sitting all around you right now. And a kind word of sympathy, devoid of frustration, devoid of your thoughts about the situation. It could be a comfort. It could be a comfort to people who are tired, who are downcast. Or as much as you and I might want to, we cannot take away the pain that someone around us feels because of a broken relationship or a relationship that's breaking. We don't have the ability to lift that pain off of them. But coming alongside them, listening to them, offering them a meal, offering to sit an evening with them, it could bring comfort. Because this is how the life of faith works. There is a deep An uncommon mutuality that exists between folks who follow Jesus. It heals sorrow and it nourishes hope and joy. It's powerful. Titus just showed up. So look, Paul doesn't have his head in the sand about his friends at Corinth. We'll see that, trust me, as we keep reading. There are still some serious problems to be addressed. There's some painful accusations. There's some very strange assumptions that need to be aired out and expressed and dealt with. All of the problems at Corinth are not solved right now. But this moment of comfort, it gives Paul great relief. It lets him know that he is working on common ground with his friends again. And it lets him really let his guard down. Maybe you heard it. It lets him really let his guard down. He admits to them that he was very concerned about this painful letter that he sent to them. In verse 8, he says, I I know that it grieved you. And then he's just so open-handed in verse 9. It's shocking in some ways. He says, I don't regret it now, but honestly, I did regret it. I regretted it for a long time. He knows it could have gone badly, but instead, the grief they felt was a godly grief, like Peter felt in the gospel lesson that we heard. We'll talk more about what Paul means by that next week, but for now, I just want to point out that the bottom line for Paul, you can see it at the end of verse 9 there. The relief he feels, the comfort he feels is because in the end... His friends suffered no loss from him. That's what it sounds like when someone is given over to the good of another in that deep and uncommon mutuality that brings comfort to the downcast. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would help us to uh, learn or to relearn, if we have to, what it means to live in community with people who follow you, people who have been loved by you perfectly and fully and completely. Help us to to, to know again that we have a great power in each other's lives to help heal sorrow, to nourish hope, to nourish joy, to bring comfort to the downcast, help us to keep our eyes open when it comes, help us to be ready to do it when we need to. Father, we do pray for our beautiful broken city. We pray for all of the folks in it who are exhausted and tired and scared, including us. We pray that you would bring some peace, that you would bring some relief, Father, we pray for those in our community and those throughout the city who are sick right now or who have been sick over the last few weeks. We pray for the people who are working with them, the doctors, the folks in hospitals. Would you sustain them? Father, we pray that you would help us to to know these things and know them again so that through us, your people, you can bring comfort to the downcast. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.